Two Sundays ago, I headed out to the North Hills of Pittsburgh for Bob Hopper's memorial service. Bob was my pastor, my friend, my colleague, and my mentor. And he died suddenly of a massive heart attack. He was 64. Bob mentored me in my 20s. I think it was Bob Hopper who introduced me to the ministry of John Piper. Uh, I was part of a small group of young men that Bob led through an extensive Bible study called the Gospel Transformation. Bob led a mission trip to Russia, and uh, I was with him. Bob was one of my references uh, for the pastorate here at Jerusalem Church, and he was on my prayer team as I discerned coming here. I loved Bob. I respected Bob. I, I learned a lot from Bob's Christ-centered life and ministry and counsel. Earlier this year, I needed some counsel, and so I emailed five of my pastor friends, and you can guess who one of them was, and I'd like to read for you this short but profound email that Bob had given me. It's the last thing that I heard from my dear friend and mentor. Bob wrote this, your responsibility as a shepherd is to meet and love people where they are and lead them to where God wants them to be. This may mean both meeting with critics privately or a small fireside chat with multiple ones at the same time. Never use the pulpit as a place to protect or defend yourself. The pulpit is the place to lose ourselves that Jesus might be seen. Blessings, dear brother, Bob. How valuable and helpful is a wise word from a godly mentor. The pulpit is the place to lose ourselves that Jesus might be seen. That's helpful. That was helpful for me to receive that. See, Bob wanted me to see more clearly how the gospel works out in my life and here at Jerusalem Church. The subtitle of this uh, new sermon series that we're starting today is The Gospel at Work in the Church. The gospel at work in the church. Paul wrote a letter to his young protege, Timothy, in order to help him see more clearly how the gospel should work out in his life and in the church of Ephesus. First Timothy is an affectionate, Christ-centered, doctrinal, and practical letter written from a mentor to to a young church leader. But it's just as much for us as it was for Timothy. Now, you may be interested to know that some of the truths from 1 Timothy have been instrumental in bringing necessary reforms to Jerusalem church over the past five years, reforms that are directly uh, contributing to our revitalization and our growth. So I'm, I'm excited for this series. I hope that you're excited for this series too. If you were to write to a dear friend, Uh, A letter. You might begin the letter with something like, Dear Alfred, or To My Dear Friend Beatrice, or something like that, and then you would sign your name at the end of the letter. Well, not so with 1 Timothy. The first word of this letter is Paul. Paul. Paul signed his name at the beginning of his letters. That was a habit of his. So right away, his recipients knew who was writing to him. All 13 of Paul's epistles begin with his name. 1 Timothy is no exception. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Now, there are always skeptics. 
when it comes to the Bible, authorship, all kinds of details, always skeptics. So Pauline authorship is contested by some modern scholars, but there are no compelling reasons whatsoever uh, to reject Paul as the author. Pauline authorship was universally accepted uh, up until the 19th century and the arrival of higher criticism, and higher criticism is chock full of liberalism, rationalism, and speculation. So why go in that direction? Paul wrote it. So then, who was Paul? Now, if you'd like a, a more complete biographical sketch, which I like to, to give at the beginning of the series, uh, I just encourage you to go to our website and check out the sermon about a year ago on July 31st of last year titled The Man Behind the Message, Intro to Philippians. Uh, that will give you more there. It would also be helpful for you to read Acts chapter 7 through 9 to give you a, a, a lot of good background. But let me pull a few biographical details of Paul from 1 Timothy, which I hope help the letter come alive for you. First, Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 1. Later in verse 12, he said that Jesus appointed him to his service. In chapter 2, verse 7, he said he was appointed a preacher and an apostle, as well as a teacher of the Gentiles. You can read about this in Acts 7 through 9, where Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord, appeared to Paul. Unbelievable story. And he saved Paul and then sent him with the gospel as an apostle to the Gentiles. His direct encounter with the risen Christ is why Paul is considered among the apostles who spent much time with Christ. Paul's story is incredible. Check it out. Broadly speaking, an apostle is a messenger or someone that is sent out with the authority of the sender. However, in the New Testament, apostle is most often applied to a specific group of men, specifically the 12 disciples and Paul who all had a unique role in redemptive history. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus, not only because he was purchased by the blood of Jesus and belonged to Christ, but also because, along with the other apostles, he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, directly chosen and commissioned by Christ to spread the gospel of Christ, and he possessed the authority and power of Christ. You see, an, an apostle had to meet several criteria and Dr. George Knight laid those out. Four things. One, directly appointed by Jesus Christ and empowered and authorized by him. Number two, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Number three, a foundation stone of the church along with the prophets as a bearer of the gospel and of God's revelation. And number four, first in leadership and authority in the church along with the other apostles. Dr. William Hendrickson added a bit more. The apostles were endowed in a special measure with the Holy Spirit. God uniquely blessed their ministry and confirmed it with signs and miracles and much fruit. And their ministry was not in one local church, but extends to all the church in every age during and after their ministry. Now today, some people believe that modern day apostles exist and possess the same authority as the apostles who wrote the New Testament, which is problematic for various reasons, including all that I just mentioned. It's clear the apostles served a unique and vital role in redemptive history. How did Paul become an apostle? Uh, did he enlist? 
Uh, did he sign up for it? Did he apply for it? Did he win it in a poker game? Did he self-profess it? No, none of those things. It was by command of God his Savior. Verse 1. Now, we usually think of Jesus Christ as our Savior, but the Bible also talks about God being our Savior. He is our Savior. He planned and provided the means of our salvation. He is our Savior. And Paul became an apostle by the sovereign mandate of a saving God. But Paul's apostleship was not simply commanded by God our Savior. It was also by command of Jesus Christ our hope. Verse 1. Jesus was the hope of Paul and Timothy. We often use hope in a different way. I hope that the Steelers win the Super Bowl. I hope that we have smoked brisket for dinner. I hope that I get an A on that exam. For us, hope seems to be this this, um, feeling that something really good might happen. Well, I hope that this happens. Well, in verse 1, hope is different than that. Jesus was Paul and Timothy's sure expectation. He was their certain future, their secure truth. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ, and Paul and Timothy expected to receive all God's assured promises in Jesus Christ. Jesus, Paul and Timothy's hope, chose and commanded Paul's apostleship. You see, Paul had received the gospel directly from Jesus, not from an evangelist, not from a preacher or pastor or friend, directly from Christ himself. Paul said in Galatians 1, 11 and 12 that he received the gospel not from any man, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, you can read about that in Acts 7 through 9 and really the entire book of Acts. So get this, the sovereignty and divine command of God and Christ had inaugurated the apostleship of Paul. Verses 1 and 2 authenticate Paul's authority and apostleship, but then they also tell us something amazing about God. So naturally, every single word of 1 Timothy was given to Paul by God and Jesus Christ. The black letters of Paul in your Bible are no less divinely authoritative than the red letters of Jesus in your Bible because divine sanction of father and son drive all of it. Please understand that. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy by the authority and commission of Jesus Christ the Lord. Second, Paul was a mentor. In verse 2, he said, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And in verse 18, he said, Timothy, my child, not biological child, spiritual child. Spiritual child, meaning Timothy was converted under Paul's preaching, and Paul mentored him into Christian maturity. Paul's affection for Timothy was deep. It was very deep and personal because he had invested so much of himself in this young man. And saw that the gospel was at work in him. The gospel was producing fruit in him. I think we need more mentoring like this here at Jerusalem Church. Third, Paul was formerly an unbeliever, blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent defined by his sin. He was a bad dude. A bad dude. We see that in verses 13 and 15. As the foremost of sinners which is quite a nickname, 
Paul receives supernatural mercy, supernatural grace from God through Christ, which transformed his life. From militant persecutor of the church to passionate missionary of the church. Incredible. Now, the word formally is so hopeful and so assuring for you and me. Because it shows what God's sovereign grace does in people's lives. Paul was an unbeliever, blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But Jesus came and Jesus transformed him into a servant, into an apostle. What, what a magnificent transformation it was. This letter, when we read it, it is evidence to us that God transforms the worst of sinners. The worst and he uses them for his glorious purposes. Be encouraged by that. Read that on every page. Wow, God's grace did this for this horrendous man. Fourth, Paul was a showcase for the perfect and glorious patience of Jesus Christ. Why would God save Paul, the foremost of sinners? This is very important to understand. Paul told us in verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Did you hear it? Do you get what God is doing here? God gave Paul mercy in order to showcase in Paul the perfect and glorious patience of Jesus Christ. God wanted to show many people even people in the future, the power of his saving mercy and grace. So he used the unlikely Paul to do it. It was like God took Paul and said, look at this miserable sinner. Look at this miserable man. Look at how he persecuted the church and see what I can do in and through him. Look at how I gave him mercy and how the perfect patience of my son is seen in him. And we're still seeing it today. This is amazing. We need to read 1 Timothy as it is, an affectionate letter from a mentor to his young protege and an authoritative treatise from an apostle commissioned by Christ himself. The most important background of 1 Timothy that, that you can get if you, if you grab anything from this is this, 1 Timothy is God's word. It is God's word, so we must receive it that way. Well, who was Timothy? Well, we've already found out from verse 2 that he was Paul's true child in the faith. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 2, Paul addressed Timothy as my beloved child. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Timothy was Paul's beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Out of all the disciples that Paul made and out of all the disciples that Paul knew, he refers to only two as true child of the faith, Titus and Timothy. Timothy was a man saved by Christ and submitted to Christ. That's why Paul said in verse 1, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And in verse 2, Christ Jesus our Lord. God was Timothy's Savior. Jesus was Timothy's hope and Lord. This, this young man was all in. He was all about gospel, all about Christ, devoted his life to these things. 
Timothy was also Paul's beloved young protege and colleague. He was like a darling and impressionable child, learning from Paul, soaking in his wisdom and his skill, striving to emulate him. In Acts 14, the great story, Paul and Barnabas uh, preached the gospel in Lystra and Derbe, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey, and they made many disciples there, had great gospel success in that area. Later in Acts 16, Paul returned to Derbe and Lystra. Now listen to Acts 16, 1 through 3. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy's mom was a believer. His father was a pagan Greek. It is likely that Timothy's mother and grandmother heard Paul's preaching in Lystra and were converted. Paul wrote to to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. He was a devout man of Christ, a devout man of Christ. And his mom and his grandmother had had a huge influence on his life, a profound effect. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 say that Timothy was a... uh, acquainted with the sacred writings since childhood. He grew up with Scripture. He grew up with the Old Testament. Then Paul comes along, preaches Christ as the Messiah. Timothy's eyes are open. He sees Jesus. He is converted, and it comes together for him. All through Paul's ministry, we see in the New Testament that Timothy spent much time with Paul. They were travel companions and missionaries, Timothy was with Paul when he wrote seven of his 13 letters. Acts 19 verse 22 calls Timothy a helper whom Paul sent into Macedonia. So Timothy was really an apostolic delegate of sorts sent on gospel missions. In Romans 16 21, Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker. And in 1 Corinthians 16 10, Paul wrote, when Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. The work of the Lord was Timothy's life. That was his pulse. That that is what he was all about. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, you might remember this, tells you what kind of man Timothy was. Paul told the Philippian saints, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. If you think about it, that's quite a tribute to Timothy from Paul. I have no one like him. Timothy's life and ministry confirmed his worth and faithfulness. I wonder if you'd just give a little thought to this. Does your life and ministry confirm your worth and faithfulness? One commentator noted that while Timothy was not an apostle in the sense that Paul and others were, the events he witnessed... And the teaching he received from the apostolic generation mark him as a key leader 
and as a primary bridge between the apostolic and subsequent periods. Timothy was a key leader of the church. God used him in big ways. Here's how John MacArthur summarized Timothy. Timothy was Paul's disciple, friend, co-worker, and dear son spiritually. By the time 1 Timothy was written, he had been with Paul for about 15 years as the apostle's constant companion. He, rem he remained behind in Berea with Silas after persecution forced Paul to leave for Athens, but later joined Paul there. He was with Paul in Corinth, was sent by Paul into Macedonia, and accompanied him on his return trip to Jerusalem. He was with Paul when he wrote Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonian epistles, and Philemon. He frequently served as Paul's troubleshooter, being sent by him to the churches at Corinth, Thessalonica, and Philippi, and now Ephesus, end of quote. What a faithful compadre. What a faithful co-worker in the gospel. Imagine Timothy receiving this letter from his mentor. How helpful it was to instruct him how to live. How helpful it was to tell him how to be a good leader for these Christians in Ephesus, these, these house churches, all for the glory of God. And Paul ended the letter like this, grace be with you, and you is plural. Now, what's up with that? You is plural. So it was for Timothy, absolutely, but he was writing through Timothy to the church at Ephesus to let them know what was up. And even more, it's for us. So I think Paul's words are just as relevant today as they were in the day when he wrote it to Timothy, instructing you and me how to live and how to act within our church. All right, this little book has a lot to say about you and me and how we interact with each other and how we interact as a church as a family at Jerusalem Church. So what is the purpose of this letter? Well, sometimes authors come right out and tell you the purpose that they're writing. Other times you have to really read between the lines. The Apostle John did that. He told you right up, up front um, in chapter 20 or 21, I think, in John, why he was writing. Well, Paul did that with 1 Timothy. And we'll see that clear purpose in a bit, so hold on. First, a little bit more background. Timothy was in Ephesus, leading the house churches there. There were significant problems for him to handle, including false teachers, that's a biggie, deceived members, a biggie, and ungodly living. That's a problem. Those are all problems. Not an easy task, if you think about it, for a young church leader to handle in these areas. Paul likely wrote 1 Timothy from Macedonia or modern-day Greece in the mid-60s after his first Roman imprisonment, and before his second Roman imprisonment and execution. We don't know for sure, but that is certainly an educated guess and pretty close. So here's what I think Paul's purpose was in writing. Five things, the last being the explicit purpose. Number one, mentoring. Mentoring. Paul crafted this letter to mentor Timothy. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart note this. Paul has left Timothy in charge of a very difficult situation in the church in Ephesus where false teachers, probably local elders, are leading some house churches astray. Paul writes to the whole church through Timothy in order to strengthen Timothy's hand in stopping these straying elders and some younger widows who had, have followed them. End of quote. 
Now, I want you to imagine that you are a young church leader with the responsibility to confront serious problems in multiple local churches. Just a, a, a show of hands here. How many of you love conflict? You love conflict. You're ready to head in there. How many of you love to have to confront people who are hurting the church? How many of you just, you're ready? You know, these are hard things. They're not an easy task. Timothy carried a heavy load, a heavy load. And Paul's letter really helped him to man up. Man up, Timothy. Get at the business of purifying the church, helping these people, leading these people. And you know what? It can do that for us too. This is going to tell us some very valuable things of what we need to do to man up or woman up or whatever, kid up. That's going too far. None of that makes any sense. All right. At the beginning of each of his 13 letters, Paul used some form of this phrase, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Though in First and Second Timothy, Paul added mercy to his greeting. Now, that was customary for Paul, okay? But those words were a lot more than just custom. He wanted Timothy to actually have and enjoy the grace, mercy, and peace of God in Christ. All were necessary for Timothy to, to get through this life, to get through this ministry that he was called to. So number two, grace was the purpose. Grace is God's unmerited kindness, his unmerited favor, and Timothy needed God's grace every day to do what God called him to do. Are we any different? Number three, the purpose of mercy. Timothy was placed in a very difficult ministry in Ephesus, confronting heresy and other problems. That's not comfortable. Not comfortable for anyone. So Timothy needed God's tender love. He needed God's tender compassion to endure a very difficult calling. Number four, peace. Peace. Peace is that inner solace that Christians feel because they are at peace with God. They have been reconciled with God. But peace can also take on the Old Testament idea of shalom, which is wellness or wholeness. How would Timothy persevere without God's peace in his heart? He needed that. I like how Dr. Hendrickson put it. Grace is unmerited favor in operation in the heart of his child. And peace is that child's consciousness of having been reconciled with God through Christ. Grace is the fountain and peace is the stream which issues from this fountain. That's helpful. Number five, how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's Paul's explicit purpose. He comes right out and tells you, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, those two letters set the stage for, or those two verses rather, set the stage for this entire letter. This letter summarizes how a Christian should act within a local church. Or to put it another way, how the gospel should play out in the local church. First Timothy is particularly relevant 
here at Jerusalem Church to our elders and deacons because God is calling them to help all of us act properly within our church. And that's not an easy task. So please pray for us as we try to live out this. Now, when Christina and I got married uh, years ago, we began to figure out what our family, how we were going to do our family. You know, how's this going to work? How it should function? Everything from victuals to vacuums to vacations to values. Do you like the alliteration there? Who uses victuals? But it was a V, so I put it in. Um, so here we are. We're figuring this, these things out, and then Jeremiah joins us. All right? This little guy has to learn what the family is all about. This is how we do things in the Shirk family. And then Maria joined us. And then Peter joined us. And then Andrew joined us. And each of them had to learn, is still learning, how we are going to do this. Uh, how to be the best family member that they can be to contribute to our family, to act within our family. Christina and I are teaching them how, which is quite an adventure. We're teaching them how to say, I love you, and how to work, and how to repent and trust in Christ, and how to stop climbing on the table. Essentially, how to live according to our family's code of conduct. And, and I should add this. Christina and I are also still learning how to do this, too, though we don't climb on the table as often. But every family, every family, your family, my family, every family has a code of conduct. Hopefully a biblical one. Some probably are a terrible code of conduct, very loose. Others might be too tight. And, you know, we want that grace and truth gospel code of conduct in our family. The code of conduct helps the family be healthy and happy and fruitful. The code of conduct helps each member know, what, what am I to do in this family? Like, how do I interact with people? What, what, what is my role in this family? And, and how do I treat the other members of my family? Please listen closely. The most important family that you have is your church family. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing trumps your family in Christ. And we have a code of conduct. We have values and expectations of you. And our health and our happiness and our fruitfulness as a family is partly dependent on how you live, the choices you make, how you interact with us. Do you understand the, the, the gravity of this? You know, we are counting on you to follow the Holy Spirit, to submit. We need you. Paul wanted to help Timothy know how to help the saints live together to the glory of God. We must help each other live in and by God's conduct, code of conduct to the glory of God. And 1 Timothy is going to help us do that. It's going to challenge us. So what should you do with this letter? As we go through this, what, what do you do? Do you just come and sit here and get it and go? What, what do you do with this? Well, I, at the outset of this, I should caution you. There are parts of this letter that will probably ruffle your feathers. 
All right, I, I don't think I can change that. This letter is countercultural. This letter is controversial even among Christians. So be ready for that. But I did read this, that if feathers don't ruffle, nothing flies. So whatever that's worth to you. Um, here's what you should do with the letter. First, during the, this series, prayerfully study 1 Timothy on your own. Okay, study it on your own. And think about how it applies to your life and our church. Study it on your own. How does it apply to my life and our church? Okay, study with application in view. Second, be humble. Be humble. If your views differ from this book, change your views. Change your views. Okay, the most important thing is that your views coincide with God's truth. Third, live out what you learn by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. Paul began 1 Timothy like this, not by mistake. Grace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It will take God's grace for you to live this out. It will take God's grace for this to work in us so that it works out in our lives, works out in our church to the glory of God. This book is intended to teach you, to teach you how you should apply the gospel to your life and how, the, how you should apply the gospel to your church. You will have completely wasted this series if you don't apply what you learn. We must study it with application. How, what difference does this make in the life of our church? Fourth, this is so important, my friends. Cherish the supremacy of God in this book. The supremacy of God is right here in the first two verses. Can you see the supremacy of God in verses 1 and 2? And it appears again in this book. Cherish it. Cherish the fact that, that God is preeminent in everything, that Jesus Christ is preeminent in everything this book will show you the beautiful supremacy of Christ. And if you're ready to see him, if you want to see his supremacy, then you're ready for this series because you're going to see it. Prayerfully study this book, be humble, live it out by the Spirit, and cherish the supremacy of God in it. If you do all that, I think God is going to use this series in your life, and I think he's going to use this series in our church and that is really exciting to be a part of that. So let's, let's just expect he's going to do some amazing things as we receive this by faith through Christ. The Spirit is working, and great things are coming. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. Oh, how merciful you are. You are God our Savior, and Jesus Christ is our hope. And it's not just, oh, I, I hope this might happen. No, God, you give us all of your promises 100% sure in Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope is an expectation that awesome things await those who trust Christ. And so, God, I pray that you bring the words of Paul alive by your spirit. Feed us, God. We want to be fed. We need to come here on Sundays to hear from you, from your word. We don't want to try to figure this out on our own. We can't. We are so dull 
But I pray, God, that your spirit would be working in us right now, preparing us for this series, preparing us to change our views, preparing us to align with Scripture, preparing us to walk by the Spirit, putting to death those deeds of the flesh that are so real for us every day. So, God, thank you for this letter from a mentor to his young protege, and I pray that we receive it with humility. Uh, reading and hearing and seeing what we need to read, hear, and see. That, God, you would be very alive for us through this book. Thank you so much for speaking to us through your scripture. In Jesus' name, for his fame alone, we pray. Amen.